The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy. Oh, kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation with the Behemoth Brewing Company. Uh, shop.behemothbrewing.co.nz if you want to check out their wares. They are our feature sponsor at the moment. And uh, you should go check out Churley's. Churley's Pub is the home of Behemoth Brewing, and you can find them at Churley's, C-H-U-R-L-Y-S dot co dot N-Z. We're doing well. I hope if you are a school holiday-ing like me, you're surviving. It's funny, so many people get busy during school holidays, and they're like, um, you know, I've got the kids around, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't have a meeting this week, I've got the kids. I find life a lot easier during school holidays myself. I find life easier to meet up with people and have meetings and this, that and the other just because it's um the kids are around. I guess my kids are now of an age where uh the 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 baby in the house, as you know, is the puppy. And so the fourteen year old can look after the puppy, which makes it uh easier to get out to a meeting. So I I I'm experiencing the reverse at the moment. My kids are on school holidays. Uh, I'm freed up. Whereas up until now, maybe with younger kids when your kids are on school holidays you are tied up. Hmm. This episode is brought to you in part by Beardy Boy's Coffee. Beardy Boy Coffee is a new way for you to support podcasters and content creators. If you'd like to support the Department of Conversation, then head to beardyboy.nz slash doc to make a purchase. Uh, there are four different roasts, including decaf. Uh, the beans are sourced from the best coffee regions in the world. Every bag of Beardy Boy coffee you buy, roasted in Dunedin that morning, on the courier that afternoon, will directly support this podcast financially. Beardyboy.nz slash doc to get your Beardy Boy coffee. Our guest today is Kim Vanell. Kim Vanell uh, has been a journalist for a long time. Uh, you will have probably seen her on TVNZ, possibly on TV3 or TVNZ. Uh, years gone by, Kim decided to uh, leave New Zealand's shores for her career, and since then she's done, gosh, a little bit of everything. Been a freelancer around Europe, has worked for TRT, which is a Turkish radio, uh, radio, sorry, television network, um, has also had a couple of stints at Al Jazeera, where she currently is right now. Uh, her job currently as the anchor, as an anchor at Al Jazeera, uh, hosting some of Al Jazeera's flag- flagship shows, including Inside Story and News Hour. Uh, she's played a pivotal role in the network's coverage of the coronavirus pandemic and also Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, Kim is back in New Zealand for a holiday, which is fantastic. So, as we've heard on recent podcasts, I managed to catch up with Kim in managed isolation. Had a really interesting chat with her. Hope you enjoy it. And it is a very good afternoon and welcome to the show to a journalist and Al Jazeera anchor, Kim Vanell. Kim, good afternoon from Otipoti as you are in Tamaki Makoto. Hi, I am. Kia ora, Pat. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I, um, yeah, uh, in MIQ, it's a weird experience. Somebody on my plane actually um, was found to have their day one test came back Ooh. positive. So it means that we're proper uh, isolation, like can't leave these four walls, can't go on walks or anything or, or get fresh air or anything, which I 100% understand. Like I'm on board team of five million. I get it. 
it's just quite <laughs> some people i was listening to your podcast with um jack when he was in miq and yeah. he was like yeah it's great it's fun it's like being in uh, an old people's home but i don't know i think maybe just because i'm like a neurotic person i find i'm i am finding it quite hard um, so let's let's but let's cool. we're real nice. Yeah, let's um let's touch base on this because um as I said to you before the broadcast, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a bit of a pirate, but lockdown's been quite good for me and uh managed <laughs> isolation's been quite good for me because I've been able to access some yeah. guests that perhaps normally I wouldn't or certainly and I know it's three hundred and thirty six yeah. hours and the reason I know that is because I tell the producers or the you know, if you can get by if you're trying to get like a Russell Howard, if you can get past that mm. front line of defense and if mm. you can get them to understand that these guys are sitting in their room twiddling their thumbs for 336 hours, they want to talk to me. If you can get past that, yeah, you, it's, it's quite a good success rate. But I haven't spoken to anyone yet who has, who has specifically gone through what you're going through. We've had the stories about yeah. people coming off the plane, getting greeted by the soldiers and you know, um, coming mm. in and getting the big rundown. But you've had... As you say, so you you don't get to go and do the walks because a lot of the guys like you would have heard on Jack Tame's podcast. They're like, oh, you know, we go mm. outside, we walk for forty minutes, we have a bit of a break, you know, we come back inside, we yeah. do work. But you're isolated to your room and your room only, are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like you know, most of the world, lots of the world has been in a lockdown for like a whole year. So, I, um, I was kind of like, you know, it'll be fine, it'll be fine going to MIQ, it's fine, and it is fine. Um, but yeah, when we got here, I was like waiting for the day three because that's when you get your blue band and you can go outside and get fresh air. Um, but yeah, we, I got the band and then I went outside to the like, little forecourt because I'm in a central hotel where there's no outdoor space. So right. if you want to go anywhere, you have to get on a bus. So I got my little day three band, went down, had five minutes outside. was like, yeah, it was victorious. Came back and then about... 15 minutes later i got a call and they were like oh somebody on your plane was positive so sorry your band is gone you can't leave the room and um you have to wait until your day seven test which again i'm not complaining it's fine i get it i'm not really worried about myself because i'm vaccinated and also wore a mask the whole time and also was like six rows away from anyone else the plane was basically empty wow um but it's more yeah it's just like the it's it's a mental thing being just in one room not leaving at all which is weird because like you spend or i anyway would spend so much time being so anxious in the world about like i've got so many things to do and i'm stressed out if only i had if only i didn't have to do anything you know like if only i but and here i am not having to do anything and then it's still really hard i was just thinking about the wristband thing it's like the world's worst music festival isn't it it's like you got you you got the backstage pass for a couple of days and they take it off you yeah. And you got to get back yeah. out with all, yeah, like the opposite. Anyway, and people, people with the bands are like VIPs. Like a couple yeah. of times, I open my door <laughs> to get the test where they do like a daily temperature check. You put your mask on, you open the door, and a couple of times, people were going to their lift, to the lift to go down for like outdoor time with their wristbands on, and I'll just be like, ah, oh, I want to be you so bad. With their noses in the but air, anyway. looking down on you yeah. as I walk past. <laughs> hey, like, hey, we're off for that fresh air that you shall not know. <laughs> Here's yeah. a here's a random question for you, and I like I'm, I don't have much of a filter, so sometimes my questions are inappropriate as well. But mm-hmm. people always talk about, oh, you know, it's like being in prison. You know, people who want to complain about being in a confined space. What is it actually mm-hmm. like being in four? Even though it's, I'm sure you know, compared to many places around the world, a luxurious four walls. Oh, it's like yeah, but, but yeah, what, yeah, yeah. But what's it actually like? What does it do to the psyche? Basically, being told um, you can't leave these four yeah. walls, you have to stay in there. Yeah. 
Um, I struggle with it, but I have anxiety in general. Um, so, and I should like acknowledge entirely, I'm so privileged. Like I'm, it is, it's lovely. Like it's clean sheets, a lovely room. I have a window that opens. Like I'm really happy for that. Um, I feel really, really lucky. But you can have that on the one hand, like feeling, acknowledging your luck and acknowledging like, you know, that I'm lucky to be home and I'm lucky that New Zealand is my home. And I'm more than, I'm proud to be able to do my part to keep the country safe. Like I want to do it. I want to be here. I want to be in isolation. I want to do it. And at the same time, acknowledge actually, it's quite hard on the old brain to like, um, yeah, not to be able to leave this this room. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I wonder- Lockdown in Qatar, I found much easier because I could, you can go outside as long as you wear a mask, you can go and get exercise. You're allowed to do that. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah. Anyway, it's two weeks. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And and look, I think I, I can hear your voice kind of going. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm ungrateful. Or I don't want to make it sound like it's complete. I think I think you can have both, though, can't you? You yeah. can kind of go. We're really lucky. Yeah. We're really. It's, it's really a safe place, and I'm okay, and it's okay. But you know, I was talking to, yeah. and, and I, I think I mentioned this before we started as well. I managed to grab the blue wiggle when he was in isolation as well, and he was like, yeah. he he's had lots of public, you know. Um, uh, acknowledgements of his mental health issues right and so and and he oh, okay. he said before he left australia he was really concerned about being isolated for two weeks and and what it might mean yeah. so and and yeah. apparently they're doing wellness checks and stuff as well is that the same as where you are like they're checking yeah. in on the, how oh you my God. are the people the people are so nice like the, there's one girl in reception when i answer when i call like if i have to call reception for anything she answers the phone like hello to you like just <laughs> so like next level joyful um everyone is really nice yeah they are here for your if you have any issues or anything with your mental well-being yeah like when i first arrived i was like started having a few like deep breathing issues um was like oh my god how am i gonna do this um and i called them and they just kind of like like it's gonna be okay you know like we're gonna check on you and we're here for you and blah 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 so yeah they are they're doing an excellent job it is weird. I can see from my room, I can see like a rooftop tennis court and there's not been a single person on there for since I've been here. And I just look at it. I'm like, people do not understand the freedom that you have. Like run around on that court, someone. It's funny the relative, yeah. when you get a relative wake up call. I remember I was studying at a, um, like a communications course and stuff in Northland. And uh, mm. a bunch of us went off to Vanuatu to uh, do some work in the villages to help them build some stuff and do some bits and pieces. Um, and when we were in the the, 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 the college in Northland, uh, we would always complain about the food and we'd complain about the conditions. We were like, Ugh. you know, and then we went and stayed in Vanuatu for two weeks and worked in these villages. And it was so much fun. So um, there's no complaints, but the relativity of mm. sleeping on a mat on concrete floor, you know, the food we were being fed there, um, you know, what the, mm. the conditions that we were then living in, we all got back to the, um, the college afterwards and there was no complaints because like we'd experienced mm. actually, you know, we're pretty lucky and pretty privileged to have what we have and we probably should wind our necks in just a little bit about, you know, what others mm. around us don't have sort of thing. Yeah. I think perspective is a really powerful, it's a really powerful tool. Think, yeah. So tell me, have you come, I'd be interested in your trip back to New Zealand, not literally the, the thing, but how, how it's been to get back to New Zealand, how difficult it was. I know that you wrote a piece yeah. that was on stuff.co.nz about not getting back for Christmas, yeah. having to do Christmas yeah. over Zoom. How has the yeah. process, and I know that, um, in fact, mentioning the Blue Wiggle, I know that 
you mentioned to me that you're a member of a few kind of getting back to New Zealand Facebook groups and there's been a bit yeah, of yeah. angst on those things about certain people getting into the country with other people not. How, yeah. is, how has your trip been back and how did it all work and pan out for you to get back to New Zealand? Yeah. The, yeah, the piece I wrote about Christmas, it wasn't so much about missing Christmas, the thing. It was more about um, there was a time when there was a there seemed to be a lot of mm, – not backlash is the right word towards Kiwis who are overseas and were struggling to get home because it was like, oh, well, you left New Zealand and so, you know, that's your choice and blah, 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 blah. There was a lot of that, um, which I found really hard because I'm like, New Zealand is my home. Like yeah. I've been gone for 10 years and I come back every year without fail because um, there's like a spiritual connection um, with this place that I, as well as my family, you know, it's like, the wide words, the thinner words. It, it, there's like um, I'm learning today at the moment, and I learned this word fanonatanga. It's like a sense of familial connection, like a kinship, like, and I I think that like encapsulated how I feel about this country. And just to have people questioning my New Zealandness all of a sudden because I had left in a way because I'd had to leave for my career anyway. So there was a bit of that, and then trying to get home was really hard because. Um, my, when I took the job in Doha, obviously pre-COVID, one of the things, reasons that I took it was because I knew at that time it was a direct one direct flight home to New Zealand. Oh, and right. my grandparents who I was really close with um, were old, and but they kind of really did help raise me. So I knew in, I knew like if, any, if they got sick, I could be home within 18 hours. So that's okay. And then um, in... It must have been April last year. My granddad died, and that was really, really sad. Sorry to hear. And then that. I had to do a, like a we did a okay. Um, we did a Zoom funeral, and then uh, about two and a half months ago, my um, grandma died as well. And so, just trying to get I tried to get home. There was there, I mean, there was no way that I could get home fast enough for either of them anyway. Um, and then there was this thing with the booking system. It was so booked out that you had to book basically four months in advance to get a spot in isolation to get home. Wow. Um, so I was trying to do that. Um, but the, the soonest I could get home was like four months in advance. And then obviously with the quarantine, two weeks, and then I can't like work. I, it was like it's difficult to get more than four weeks off at a time. So then it was like, is it worth it going home to quarantine in two weeks and two weeks out and then come back again? Um, but anyway, managed to make it work. Work has given me a little bit more time off so I can have more time outside of quarantine. Um, but yeah. And the other thing I would say about the, the groups and people being, so as I was saying to you, I'm like part of these Facebook groups, Kiwis trying to get home, <laughs> Kiwis in quarantine. Like it's huge. It's a huge community. Like tens of thousands of people wow. um, are coming home and um, just real sad stories. Like even on my plane, this woman was saying, you know, she's been trying to get back for six months and because her mum was sick and her mum just died three weeks ago. You know, just real, real sad things. And on these groups, people are like desperate, you know, they're like, my mum's got cancer. I need to get home. Can anyone give me their MIQ spot? But then other people on those MIQ spots have been trying to get home for months as well. Um, I have a friend in um, Ghana with her husband and she's been trying to get home with him and they wouldn't give him a visa because they didn't believe that it was a real relationship, even though they've been together for ages and they're married and wow. she couldn't get home. Anyway, it was just sad. And yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm really, really grateful to be home now. 
I'm really, really grateful. The people who are giving you grief about not being, you know, back in New Zealand, like, why did you leave? Well, that was that primarily mm. Kiwis doing that? Like, you're not deserved to come back, or was that like international? Yeah. What was Kiwis? No, it was it was mostly Kiwis, and it was mostly just like Twitter warriors. To be fair, like <laughs> it wasn't like anyone was calling me up, being like, "Don't come home, I don't want you." <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was yeah, mostly just people saying. You, you you know keep keep the virus out we don't want you to come home oh, um, people are we, lunatics you know, yeah yeah and it was not the majority at all but it was also really nice i had quite a few like emails from other kiwis overseas being like thank you for articulating um that feeling of um just having your like kiwiness questioned for having to go for, for having to go overseas or being overseas because that, that didn't feel that great um, it's interesting as well, the idea that you just said about, you know, this is home. Um, mm. I saw this clip just yesterday. I'm going to bring it up, actually. I might This might be a bit clunky because I haven't got it queued up. But I saw this clip just yesterday with Aquaman, Jason Momoa. Oh, yeah. I was just talking with him about, a, about him with a friend today. Oh, goodness. I thought you just said, I thought you were about to say I was just talking to him. And I was like, really? Yeah, well, I was just chatting to him. I was just chatting to old Jace. Old Jacey boy. Yeah. Um, I'm like but he was talking about feeling like a New Zealander. And oh, yeah. you know, like you, you, the perspective thing, you don't know what you've got until, you know, someone else explains it to you or you don't know what you've missed until you've gone or you don't know. He explains this thing. Um, and I think I'm going to, I'm going to try and play it. I'll see, I'll see if I can find the right spot. It's not a long clip. If we have to watch a little bit of it, give me a second. It's from news hub. Um, and we're uh, fair use, so we're going to use this. From the minute we um, sat down, that while Jason Momoa hey, is Roger. Hawaiian, so, he is convinced to yeah, down he's a Kiwi. Yeah, have a listen. This is really cool. I haven't told anyone this. Mm -hmm. The Momoa lineage goes back nine years. I think it was back nine um, generations in Hawaii, but we actually came from, we found out we came from Aotearoa, which means we left, we left Hawaii, went down to Aotearoa, and then back. That's my line. And I've always been drawn, since I was a baby, I saw pictures of New Zealand. I've been just pulled there. And the moment I stepped foot there, it was the only place on earth that I felt like this is exactly where I'm from. Not even Hawaii has done that to me. Like, I am so connected yeah. to Aotearoa on a higher level. I know I'm from there. Well, That's pretty know. dope, eh? That's a pretty dope thing to hear from someone yeah. else giving perspective like that. Yeah. I think also because I've been... Um, as part of learning um, te reo, I've been um, tracing my own whakapapa. It's, that's also been really powerful because I've like, um, you know, I've found my tribe and I'm, you know, like my cousin incredibly, like I, I think the last the last person in, in our whānau to speak te reo and to be part of their marae was my great-grandma. Wow. Because it was, it was with her that the language was kind of beaten out of her and she was i guess shamed into not wanting to identify with her maori side so she didn't so that never got passed on but anyway incredibly my cousin uh, my second cousin um in university learned te reo and then tracked it traced our tipuna and has traced it back to um like back like nine generations back na uh, through nati toa which is really awesome like back all the way to tirokraha um, so it's awesome that someone's all done that work for me and now I've like um, reached out to 
the marae that my grandma, great grandma was associated with. So I'm like, hopefully going to go and meet them. And so that's a whole other level of like feeling connected to this place. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I look, um, yeah, it's, it's, cool. it's, I think you get, I've, I've never been to Ireland, but I know that I've, I, my, my, my mother's maiden name was Mulligan. You know, I'm Patrick. I literally could have been Patty Mulligan. You know, that's how much Irish blood flows through my my veins. Um, and I just, I've heard so many stories with people who, um, like I, I know, a, I've got a friend and she's got this wicked red hair. And the first time she turned up to Ireland into the airport, handed over a New Zealand passport, they were like, welcome home. That's what they said to her because they just, they could tell. They knew that that was where she came from at some stage, her ancestry. So I've never, I haven't been to Ireland yet. It's going to be something I do and I, I get the sense, not that I don't feel like I belong here, I always have, I always do, but I, I get the sense that there'll be something deeper when I set foot on that land about my thousands of years of ancestry around the parts of Northern Ireland that my ancestors are from. So, yeah, I think it's cool. Yeah, it is a really powerful, powerful journey. Mm. Not to sound too cheesy about it, but it is. I had the Irish um, ambassador in for a quick podcast a couple of years ago. And I, I, I kind of missed an opportunity, yeah, because he was like, oh, we should get you over there. And I'm like, yeah, 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 we should totally do that. And then I kind of never chased it up. And I was wondering a few days ago, I wonder if he was actually off. I wonder if he was actually offering to get me over there. <laughs> you missed out on a free flight maybe, to Ireland. Maybe, 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 maybe. No, but that's cool. And I love watching, it's like, there's two sides to this when you have a new experience. Like, you know, the worst people to talk to smoking about is an ex-smoker. Because they're militant and why you shouldn't do it. Like I moved from Auckland to Dunedin, and um, you know, so I don't know. I'm, not, I'm an ex-smoker, and I love smoking. So <laughs> don't do it. It's bad. But I am not. I'm not that ex-smoker. I'm the one who's like, can I stand next to you while you smoke? I just need anyway, it passively. Up. Give me that passive hit. Um, have you have you turned to vaping then? Have you done something else in between? No, no I just was like, I need to get this out of my life. It's been too long. Journalism, though, eh, man? I remember working at ZB and. The number of people that were down on Cook Street, you know, every 35, 45 minutes to, to inhale a cigarette in about 60 seconds, a whole cigarette, was unreal. The journalism yeah. world is, is rife also, with it. Also, it was a real, like, connection thing. Like, it was a great way to make friends. And then also I started um, what are you, connecting it with live crosses. So I would, like, smoke before a live cross, like, right up to before I did it, and then I would smoke right afterwards. And so then when I stopped smoking, all of a sudden life crosses became about like 1,000 times more stressful because I was like, I don't know what to do with my hands. But anyway, smoking is awful. I feel a bit the same when I go out for a beer. I'm not a big drinker. I mean, I don't I don't drink a lot. Um, but when I do, from my student days, if I'm holding a, a can or I'm holding a glass, my fingers kind of do this naturally, like they're supposed to have yeah. something there. It's just, it's it's a muscle memory that just always feels like it's supposed to be, but... Yeah, it's not. It's not good. Isn't it a weird thing how like you can become addicted to something that literally will kill you? Like I had, I just would have to remind myself that of that all the time when I was when I was quitting. Anyway. So how long have you got Sorry, New Zealand? I I, no, 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 no. I was just going to say that 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 when someone is an ex something, and I think I see that in Jason Mamara about that. You know, he's you can find appreciation in what you have by looking at someone else. And they want it. Like he, I mean, he sounds like the kind of guy that might end up living in New Zealand, retiring in New Zealand or, you know, buying a place up in central Otago as the stars seem to do or, or, or whatever. 
Um, and, yeah. and and I've got something that Jason Moa doesn't have and he wants it and it just gives you another appreciation. I mean, I've got plenty more yeah. that Jason Momoa doesn't have, but just the one thing we're talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, can I tell you something? I'll tell you something. I'll, I'll reveal a bit of my um, idiocy here. When I saw that clip, I um, messaged him on, not obviously the, not that I've got a connection with him, but you know how you can message anyone on Messenger and they just go into their junk thing. Mm. I, I'm not Messenger, sorry, on um, Instagram. And I told him that uh, to do my podcast was a prerequisite in getting citizenship. So he should connect and, and then we could connect and then I'd help him get citizenship. <laughs> I just think, you know, oh if, the, if there's that one in a billion chance he happens to be going through his junk fight all that day and sees it, it might make him smile. And who knows? Know. Who knows? You don't ask, Why you not? never know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there'll be two moons in the sky and one in the backyard, as my mum used to say. <laughs> hey, um, you've got a really interesting kind of uh, career journey because you've done the TV3, TVNZ thing, but then you, as you say, you left New Zealand for your career. And, and I'm fascinated as to what it's been because, um, I mean, correct me with, with the time frame if I'm, if I'm wrong, but it seems other than kind of the freelancing thing, you went off and did Al Jazeera as a reporter, then went off and did anchoring in Turkey, and then came back to Al Jazeera to do anchoring. I'd love to know about yeah. like what leads you in those areas and how you got there because I just think about I don't know why because they feel like both feel like very foreign places. Um, Turkey feels yeah. maybe a bit more foreign, like although there's that lovely connection with the Anzacs in Turkey, but it feels like a, yeah. a even more so. Is, is Doha a little bit more Western than Turkey? And and yeah, tell me about living and working in Turkey and Doha. That must be just a fascinating life. Yeah, I loved Istanbul. I loved Turkey. I mean, it was an incredible place to live. Um, and yeah, it was funny that the Anzac connection, like Turks are fiercely proud and um, fiercely proud of Ataturk, um, the founding father of modern day Turkey, who was the one I think who made that speech like your sons are our sons yep. that yeah. And um, I remember there was a there was a floor manager at the place I was working in Turkey who um, every Anzac day would like bring me in and like make me a big spread of of food and like wanted want to talk about everything that happened and what Ataturk said and you know how, what New Zealanders feel towards Turkey and and actually my dad came over one year for Anzac Day because he was in the Air Force band I want to make sure I think it was the Air Force band. For many years, I should know that. Anyway, I came over, and um, we went to Gallipoli together, and it was it was incredible. It was really powerful. Although I got food poisoning, and I was vomiting, and in the medic tent for like the whole main part of the ceremony. But apart from that, it was um, really powerful. But um, but yeah, no, Turkey is epic. It's an amazing place to go. It's got like a, it reminds me a lot about like New Zealand in terms of like having incredible natural beauty, amazing beaches. Um, yeah, the only thing I that is different in that respect is New Zealanders have such a respect for nature, which I love. Like, you don't go to like some of the places, some of the like um, parks and stuff in Turkey. You'd go and people would just leave rubbish everywhere, and I'd be sitting there like as a New Zealander, like nah, like just put it in the rubbish bin. Um, but that's not everyone. That was just some places around where I lived in Istanbul. Um, when you were in, yeah, when you were in Turkey, did you use that kind of as a as a launch pad to go through Europe and stuff as well, and spend lots of times, you know, you know, like I mean, like it's not quite the same job 
anchoring a, a news network as to you know working in a pub in London. But a lot of Kiwis kind of use that you know either eastern side or western side of of Europe to yeah. see the rest of Europe and experience it. Yeah. To be um, fair, I, so I went to London after I went. So when I left TVNZ, um, I went and lived in East Africa, and then I went to West Africa, and then I went to London. Um, and that's when I started working for Al Jazeera the first time. So in between like deployments for them around Europe, because I covered a lot of Europe um, before I started doing like conflict zones, I did uh, quite a lot of like uh, reporting and producing around uh, Europe. So I saw a lot that way, as well as like using London as a launch pad to just like hang out around Europe with my friends, which was really cool. Yeah. But I almost look back and feel like I didn't really do it because I was working so much. Like even though I was living in London, I was probably only of the two years I lived there, I was probably actually only in London, like maybe six months because I was just on deployment all the time. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of done more of Europe by the time I got to Turkey. Right. So by the time I was in Turkey, I kind of spent that more to be in the region. So like going to Israel and the Palestinian territories and um, where else? I mean, we travel. Oh, and like some random places as well, like Georgia and, I can't even remember. It's a bit of a blur. But yeah, I've kind of stayed more on like that side. How old's your um, How old's your passport right now? That's stupid, weird way to ask the question, but I'm like, is it getting towards the end of its life? Is it full of a thousand kind of uh, entry and exit so stamps sad. at the moment? I had to get a new one because it got, I had to get a new one because I had no um, things left. And now my, my new one is completely empty. And you're not allowed to keep it anymore, eh? Right? Oh, no, no, I've still got, I think I've still got the other oh, one. Okay. I think they sent it. Yeah. Because that, be yeah, no, that, that must be an amazing thing to look through and just go, been there, been there, been there, been there, been there. Must be cool. I feel like so lucky, so incredibly lucky to have been the places I have for my job. Like it's such a privilege to be able to witness history like that. It's amazing, amazing. Like I, real, I, I was thinking that I was – thinking the other day about um like places i traveled on deployment from turkey so i spent some time in syria and then we went on this like weird presidential trip with erdogan and then but it was was, like three days three countries didn't really see any of them spent christmas day in sudan and then went to chad and i just like completely forgotten about it until i can't remember i was having a conversation with my husband about it but yeah, I feel real lucky. Really, really lucky. Do you actually know how I many countries like, you've been in? Like, do you know a number? No. You should totally work that know. out. I should, yeah. That'd be fun. But then also you meet a lot of people as an expat, you meet a lot of people who go to countries literally just to take it off. It'll be like, right. oh yeah, we're going to go to Romania this weekend because I need number 41 or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's crappy. Like, I don't like just going to a place just to say you've been there, like go and see it and like meet people and stuff well that's my next that's my next question about being a foreign correspondent or a correspondent in general if you're going to go cover something like the logistics of that i just realized i told you before we started i like talking logistics and how things function i'm interested like if you turn up to i don't know let's not talk about anything specific if there's been some kind of tragedy in some part of the world that you go from i'm looking at a map right now you go from turkey to uh to georgia or to armenia let's say next to next to turkey and you have to cover that if you were there for two or three days do you actually have any um time to 
get around and look around when you're there for work? Like, do you work for 10 hours a day and have four or five hours to kind of take in the site? Or when you're there as a correspondent, is it work, work? So when you talk about getting around and meeting people, that's sort of in the other times you go there. I think most of the deployments that I've been on, most of them would not be that short. Like if, if a network is going to pay for you to go somewhere, even if it's because of one specific, say, event or tragedy or whatever, generally you would stay a bit longer and find other stories in that country, right. in that region, because you're there anyway and they're paid to get you there. So you should find some other things to do while you're there. So mostly... I mean, I have had some really short trips, like if you're just going to cover a summit in Brussels or something, you're just there for a day and then you go home. But most of the time, yeah, you spend a bit longer and you have a day off, maybe in the space of 10 or 12 days, you might have one day off that you get to like have a look around or whatever. It's our, that's our theory of ordering Uber. Our theory of ordering Uber when you're getting sushi, you always get another yeah. six pieces because you're paying for the delivery fee. And even if they sit in the fridge for two days, you, you, you get your money's worth for that one travel fee. It's kind of very similar to spending thousands of, it's basically the same. Basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. It is basically the same. <laughs> um, what, do you, what is it like for you? Because I know you did some freelance work. I've, yeah. uh, this is what I, this, this podcast is not freelance, but this is, this is my gig and I, you know, I'm the master of my own domain, so to speak. Um, I've always said to people who think it's great that you do this, it's, it's, it's fun to have the freedom. Um, but that paycheck at the end of each week when you're working for someone is quite attractive as well. How did you find the yeah. difference between freelancing, um, I guess around Europe and around the world versus, you know, working for Al Jazeera or it's, it's I was going to say, it's, it's not called TYT. What's the um, one in, it's TRT, TRT yeah, yeah. in Turkey. I am a real sucker for security, I've realized, and it's taken me a long time to accept that um, because I didn't want to be the kind of person who needed that kind of, because I think it's really admirable to like step out, do something that you're passionate about, take the risk of the, you know, when you're going to get paid or when you might not get paid. But yeah, I look back and I'm like, yeah, actually, I get quite anxious if I don't know when I'm going to get paid next. And also as a freelancer, particularly in like uh, London, you have to say yes all the time when people offer you shifts because you don't know when you're going to get them again. So gotcha. you have the, in, that, in that context, you have the illusion of having more time or more freedom. But in actuality, you end up saying yes and working heaps because you're not sure when you're going to get when you're going to get work again. And what do you find yeah. that people will say it's feast or famine, but it just does it just always end up being feast that you're always busy? In my experience, yeah. And then when you go to ask for time off, you're like, oh, I want three weeks off because I'm going to go home or whatever. And then you feel awful about it when actually you shouldn't. I was reading this thing the other day, actually, about how in the pandemic, a lot of people have found like a misplaced sense of, um, it sounds bad, but like a misplaced sense of appreciation for having their job. Because we well, we should like appreciate our luck and our fortune to have maintained our jobs when so many people have lost them. Yeah. What this article was positing was that when you work for someone, you're getting a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. They're not doing you a favor. You are you are working. You are giving your time for money. That's a fair exchange. So while you should be like grateful and appreciative of your position, it does it shouldn't lead to like you know, just taking anything or being in a position where you hate, you hate what you're doing, but you have to do it because you feel so grateful. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know it's a very like privileged position to be in, to be able to, I'm not saying like 
you should choose to not have a job or whatever because everyone needs to work and pay bills but i'm just saying that we you know the whole the whole concept of a fair day's wage for a fair day's work i think we shouldn't lose sight of that like you're not do you know what I mean? I do. And when I hear you say uh, we're not doing them a favor, I think straight away that goes both ways. I think sometimes you get those bosses who think that you owe them a favor because you're giving them money. But then you also yeah. get employees who think, well, I'm working for these guys, so they better treat me like gold. And I think the truth yeah. is the, the employment contract and employment law uses the phrase um, acts of good faith. It uses the phrase good faith quite a lot. Mm. And I think that's in a, in a working environment. That's what it is. You know, it's good faith sign between both parties. I'm paying you to do your work. You're working for the money. You know, I'll go above and beyond to protect you as your employer. And you'll go above and beyond to do what you need to do to get your job done as my employee. And that's when you get the best relationships. It's just, it's been quite fascinating for me. Um, my husband is a, um, a marketing dude and he has people under him. So people he hires and manages. And I've never been in that position. So I've, I've never like been exposed to it. But he's constantly thinking about like how can he get the best out of people and make them happy as well like how like it's a real both way situation you know like it's and and that's i don't know i just had never been exposed to that before and now as an employee i think okay you know like i'm going to give them the best that i can do but let's make this like fear i don't i'm not talking necessarily about money but like i think now all employers are thinking about like you know, does this person want to work from home sometimes? Yeah. Are we going to get more out of them if they work less? And when they do work, they work, you know, they're going to, because they've got that goodwill, they're going to work like better or yeah. more productively. It's, it's not being taken advantage of and not taking advantage. It's both. I'll tell you a story about, I, I got a lesson when I was, I was working for More FM in Auckland. It was my first job in radio. And, oh, yeah. you know, I was the, the, the nighttime guy, the overnight guy in the days we were still chopping CDs out. So they had to have somewhere there overnight because they didn't use computers um yeah. and so it's your venture into the world but because you're an announcer they gave you all the same perks and privileges as the other guys uh, when it come to company stuff so we'd go away on retreats and we'd go away on you know various things and we did this one once where we went off to a hotel for a weekend and i don't know what personality test they put us through but do you know the love languages oh yeah okay so it was something akin to the love languages. And they put us all through it. And I thought, gosh, this is really interesting. Why are they putting us through this? I knew what the love languages was. And so it was, you know, it was something that was recognizable to me. But the reason they did it was they wanted to know how to get the best out of us. And they found out that if person X who was in sales was a was a quality time person, and if you don't know the love languages, just look it up, that means they appreciate and value quality time over anything else, then actually giving them Friday afternoon off as a yeah. reward for their work was the best thing for them. If person Y was a gift giver, which is one of the what other love languages. You're a physical touch person, though. Well, that's when you have to get HR involved, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it probably wasn't love languages, but it was something like that. And they, they, they didn't do it for the person to find out about themselves. They did it for the bosses to find yeah. out about the person, and then they could tailor how to get the best out of them. So the person who was the gift giver the the management the manager of sales would say well if you hit your targets this month you know I'll give you a five hundred dollar voucher or whatever the equivalent was in the late nineties um, five hundred dollar voucher to Noel Emings and they'd be like whoa shopping great I'm going to work for that even though you know they're already getting all their commissions and stuff and it was really smart it was a really yeah. smart way to 
figure out your staff and figure out how to get what's best out of them and make them feel valued at the same time. The flip side of this, and I don't, I don't know if I believe it, but something one of my good friends always says is that human re- uh, HR, human resources, are neither human nor resource. They're not, <laughs> they're not interested in your well-being. They're interested in the, the well-being of the company. So if you think that whatever they're doing is about you, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know what I believe, but that was that's the way that she looks at it. I, um, I've got a friend who's going through a contract uh, negotiations at the moment, and I said to them something that I remember. Someone, I've, I, you know, you get these little tidbits that you're going through life. I remember uh, someone once said to me, "If you want to start your own business, practice on someone else's first. So that was a great piece of advice. Um, yeah. And someone else has said about contracts: the best kind of contract is the one that you sign and then goes in the bottom drawer, and you never have to look at it again. And so it's getting all those things sorted out on day one to figure out how to best get that win-win that we're talking about. Best get, you know, uh, I will negotiate this. Like I remember working for a radio station, which will remain nameless, who wrote into a contract, uh, you are expected to work every public holiday. And I went, no, <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry. No, not going to happen. Not going not gonna to work every public that, holiday. And at the start is when you have the power to, to negotiate because once you've signed, you're done. And also as women, we should be aiming like 50% higher than what we think that we should. You know what I mean? Like I've so many times I've gone into jobs. I'm like, thank you so much for giving me a job. I'm so lucky. Like actually flip the script is like going, Hey, I'm good at what I do. And I should be like fairly, you know, compensated for it. And I think as women, we often do that. Like we go into situations where we're like, Oh, you know, like maybe I can try and do this. And if I have my imposter syndrome for long enough, then I will feel like I actually know what I'm doing, but no, just, I don't know what I'm saying. Well, but the, but the other should... the other thing around that is you keep your powder dry. Like I filled out some job forms over the last five years, primarily for radio jobs around the country, and they ask what your expected remuneration is, and I always just write market rates. <laughs> I'm not telling you. I'm not telling. I'm not telling you what my rates are because then if it's if you're prepared to pay me more, why would I give you an out? What's the point? Yeah really smart so i just write market really? market rates <laughs> it's probably why i've got none of the jobs that's probably what it comes down to <laughs> but it does but but yeah i, I think we all understand ourselves and you, you, you're right about you know women especially i remember a story that um oliver driver told about when he wanted to leave shortland street and he told his agent and, and i'm paraphrasing and i forget this slightly wrong and if oliver was to hear or see this i apologize but the general gist of it was he wanted out of shortland street so he um told his agent in the renegotiations to go for a, quote, ridiculous number um, mm. that they would never honour. And they just went, okay. Yeah. And I guess that it's, means, I, I, don't, I don't know what the number was, but I guess that means he earned yeah. some bloody good money for a while, but doing a job he didn't really want to do. But, you know, yeah. we, we all have seasons. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I, had I, a, remember, Oliver's brother. I remember Shortland Street. I watched it just yesterday. Did that's, you? That's when you know you're really home. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. You're someone who's in the media, and and obviously you, I imagine, would keep you. Do you keep much of an eye on what's happening in New Zealand when it comes to media, or are you just too busy for that? No, one hundred percent, I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm on stuff.co.nz or nzherald.co.nz every single day. I even paid up to be a premium subscriber. Look at the you. Journalism is really good. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's really interesting what they're doing at Stuff with the new sort of ownership model and how that's going to pan out over the next couple of years. I'm interested. I, I've yeah. been asking to get the, the CEO on a, a little bit. And um, I've had a couple of them on. I've had Paula Penfold on a couple of times talking about her documentaries. And, um, oh, my God. I know. Listen, I'm such a huge fan. Yeah, she's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, and the head of the board, amazing. There are some incredible 
talent in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so encouraged coming back, like, to see Te Reo Māori being used, like, just in normal everyday, on you know, on the TV, like, in the normal everyday media landscape. The, the funding, like, there's a journalism fund that's just been created, I saw, to fund journalism. You know, the fact that they're hiring, like, local democracy reporters. It's awesome. Like, this is exactly what should be what should be happening. So the thing to me that seems interesting about New Zealand journalism is we seem to be big enough to sustain but not too big to fail. Let me, let me explain. When you hear about newspapers in London shutting down, mm-hmm. then you realise that there's seven daily newspapers. You kind of go, oh, well, you know, there's not enough to go around, but it doesn't mean all of them are shutting down. In New Zealand, the newspapers are, you know, Herald in Auckland, Waikato Times in Waikato, the Don Post in, in Wellington, Christchurch Press, ODT, and some smaller ones around the area. Feels Monterey like Chronicle. Sorry, I forgot to let out the uh, the OG one as well there. Yeah. Um, but it feels like we're big enough to sustain, let's say, one daily newspaper, although the daily subscriptions are model is changing, yeah. um, but not too big to fail like seven dailies. And it feels a bit the same with our television news, our um, you know our radio and stuff as well is that we're 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 sort of a nice size to be able to keep things going, albeit um, you know for want of a better word under new management, doing things a new way. I'm interested. You're obviously involved in very large organisation overseas. How you see the New Zealand media landscape operating compared to what you're seeing mm. in other parts of the world? Mm. Um, I think that. I'm encouraged by some of the hires that have been happening recently in New Zealand, like um, one of the EPs from Al Jazeera, a guy called Yuri, is now heading up News and Current Affairs at TVNZ, and they've just hired, um, oh gosh, what's her name? She was the head of digital uh, at Al Jazeera as well, Mediana Hond, who's an ex-TV3, both Kiwis, coming back with like incredible experience to breathe new life and to encourage innovation, because I think that has been traditionally quite slow like I I felt like when I was uh, working in New Zealand like I felt like if I was to present like new ideas or to suggest new ways of doing things there would often be pushback like well no this is how we've always done it so this is how we're going to continue to do do it and I think that has changed like I remember when I was pitching um the first like uh Facebook digital show for um for media works I've spent like a year and a half there and we I wanted to do this show called Facebook Live or News Hub Live or something where it would just be like a panel show doing like topics of the day that were really interesting, basically like a, like a podcast, basically like this, but like in a studio. Um, and that was so hard to get across the line and I had to do all of it outside of my normal job um, until I could prove that it worked sort of thing. And then it did work, which was great. But I think it was a really hard process. But I think now it seems like, yeah, innovation is happening and investment is happening. And I don't know, people who are in in it would be much better placed than I am um, to say that. But it's, yeah, like there are just some amazing journalists who are doing really cool stuff. I just watched, um, it it was done ages ago, but Meherangi Forbes, I think it was Maharangi who did a, uh, a, a series for RNZ 
about the New Zealand wars. Yeah. And that was just so beautifully shot. In fact, one of them, I um, hosted the Association of International Broadcaster Awards. One of them was um, nominated for like an international award. And I was so proud to see that had made it there. Um, but I'm glad those things are being funded. And um, yeah, like the spinoff is doing, I was part of a team who launched, um, went for fund New Zealand on air funding a couple of years ago for a series called frame with spinoff. And it was the purpose of it is to do like short documentaries that are um, showcasing new talent, like new directors, new producers, um, people who yeah want like, like step into the industry and can tell important stories. And that got funded and that's continue continuing now to get funded and they're amazing. And I'm like, it makes me so excited to see that stuff is getting funded now. Um, yeah. The new the new um, talent and stuff you're talking about and the way things are picked up on, I think what I've seen in New Zealand as well is there's been a long, um, and maybe this comes down to our economies of scale again. Like when I was working on ZB doing the mid-dawns, like the mid-dawns, we had a bigger per capita audience than Bill O'Reilly had. So if you worked it out per capita, <laughs> we had more listeners oh, yeah, per cool. capita than he had viewers yeah. Um, you know, on his on the number one Fox News show in the world, whatever the feck it was, um, but because that meant a hundred thousand listeners in an overnight slot, that businesses didn't seem to find valuable. They, the media landscape didn't quite know about how to monetize it and how to make it. And I think part of that is the economies of scale. The same number of people's per capita, and in, in, in you know the US made a guy a hundred millionaire. Mm. Um, and I wonder about uh, the 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 way the media in New Zealand. There's a mixture of how they're picking things up, and if they're able to. I mean, podcasting is a really good example. It feels like mm. the business world in New Zealand hasn't quite picked up on the benefits of, for example, advertising with podcasting. And yeah. it feels like that the commercial corporate media world is coming in now, trying to do it, but basically like it's yeah. a version of radio where they're putting dynamic adverts yeah. in there that can jump in and out over the forthcoming months, which is not what podcasting is mm -hmm. and is not what the strengths of the advertising is. Um, yeah. And it's like the New Zealand media seems to, and, and I wonder if this is an economy to scale or just purely at our size, it misses something, misses something, misses something, misses something, and then tries to go hell for leather and get into there. And I remember when yeah. the rest of the radio world, when I was working in radio, was talking about digital radio, DAB and Sirius and all that kind of stuff. And I remember thinking then, you know, talking about the, the 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 conferences in New Zealand were talking about, you know, turning towards digital radio. And I remember thinking then and there, this, they, we're never going to go digital. Because by the time you get digital receivers into all the new cars, they then all flow on 10 years later to become second-hand cars. They, then all of a sudden the new things come along. And obviously what's happened since then is now we all just stream from these things. And there's no yeah. digital... There's no digital radio in New Zealand. It's it's there's no need for it. So I wonder if we're I in this. Remember back... There you go. Oh no, you go. I, say, I remember back even when I was like my first job at TVNZ in two thousand and eight and nine. People were saying like the six p.m. news is dying. Like people don't watch the news anymore. Even then, like so, what are we going to do about it? You know how are we and then over the years it was like oh we need to integrate more with online and, and i don't even know if that has still even fully happened yet i don't even know if like the content creation teams are thinking not about 6 p.m news first because that was like the gold standard when i was there anyway i was like yeah when i get to the 6 p.m news i've made it you know like 
but now I don't know if that should be I definitely don't think that should be the case anymore like who the you know we don't get our news at 6 p.m we get our news all the time on our phones yeah. how can the behemoths of the media industry here like fully embrace that of all the different ways that people want to consume content which is why i'm like so encouraged that people like mediana are coming into um the head of digital at tvnz because i think you know they get it um and i think rnz does an amazing job i think the spin-off does an amazing job so there are people out there doing it really well but as you say it's like that um modernization process like how how quickly can you adapt and not just adapt but how are you looking ahead to how people are going to be wanting to get their news or their content in you know five years time and ten years time yeah and adapt and also make worthwhile i mean everyone could go to the latest thing tomorrow if they wanted to but they might be terrible at it so it, it also needs to be you know worthy of of the move as well i really hope i'd be interested in your thoughts on this i really hope tvnz and rnz combine and they go to a kind of a bbc model I actually think they could be really valuable in I mean, it this seems country. Crazy that they, it seems crazy that they don't. You've got such, like, if people are a resource, you have incredible resources in both these companies. Like, how could they, surely, if you brought them together, they could be so much more effective? I, I don't know. I, I think so. And I also think that for the rest of the media landscape, if TVNZ, well, TVNZ1, whatever they're calling it, um, becomes non commercialized then what you're also doing is you're giving the other channels, including TVNZ2 and TV3 and Prime, access to those advertising dollars that are now not going to TVNZ1. So I think them doing something like that, going to a funded model, gives us that kind of pure public uh, broadcaster, but also probably helps helps the other ones stay afloat as well, which is really important. It's really important to have yeah. you know those other views as well. And then, I mean, TVNZ7, I'm not sure when you left versus when that was around, you know, that then had the space. I was on that. I used, oh. to, I used to anchor on that. That was like my first anchoring gig. There you go. So that gave space for, you know, and when I say minority views, I'm not talking about ethnically, but just, you know, any minority. I mean, if you belong, if you own a VW Beetle, you're a minority. You know, but whatever those were, the ability for them to have a space to be able to, you know, have their piece of the public broadcaster and show their wares. And you're talking about... Um, what RNZ's doing, and because they are doing so much video content now anyway, it just seems to be a natural, I mean, it can still show online and on this new public broadcaster, which is the new TVNZ non-commercial channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It just seems to be a no-brainer to me, I don't know. But then again, who am I? Hey, I wanted to say to you as well, you were talking about um, people who are in the industry here maybe having a better handle on it. I, You might be right. But I've always been a strong believer in this. I call it the, the the spectator view, you know. I've always talked about, you know, and this is an example I've used on this podcast a couple of times. If I'm talking about my life, for example, my life is like a game of rugby because I'm from New Zealand, so you have to use a rugby analogy. And the, the field that the game is going on is my life. The players are all a part of my life. The game is my life. When you're in the game... If you're in the front row, if you're in the ruck, if you're in the mall, sometimes your head's down and you can't really see what the wingers are doing. But someone in the stadium oh. always can. Someone up in the crowd always can. So sometimes that external view, sitting in the stadium, yeah. looking down on the field, is actually a better perspective to be able to go, oh, the wing is free, or whatever the example is. So I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't oh, undersell. Yeah. I wouldn't undersell yourself there totally because I think sometimes that external perspective can be. Uh, certainly if not more valuable at least as valuable 
as what's going on on the inside. Mm-hmm. I guess I just don't want to um, disparage the people who I've worked with who are working in these organizations who I think do incredible jobs. You know, like I know that, you know, there are some amazing journalists who break great stories and who push boundaries and who are, you know, really care about the media industry in this country, like I do, um, but who are deep in the trenches, you know, because it's, it's hard when you're, when, you're, when you're deep in it. Yeah. Living in Doha, what's life like in Doha? Um, life is hot. It's hot. It's hot all the time. It is just coming into summer now and it gets unbearable. I think Doha, I mean, it has changed so much since the last time I lived there. I lived there six years ago for like nine months. In that time, it's transformed into like a whole new city. Um, But it gets to like 40 or 50 degrees in the summer. And when you, you can't really go outside and it makes me feel like, is this a place that is meant for human life? I feel like the environment is like conspiring against you. Um, but yeah, in terms of like coronavirus, it's, we've just gone down into another lockdown, but it's kind of lockdown light in that, um, you can go outside if you wear a mask to go and exercise. Um, if you've been fully vaccinated, you can gather with five people if you're in the outdoors of your private home, but not inside, but it's kind of getting too hot to do that now anyway. Um, but yeah, I think I just wanted to kind of lock it down before Ramadan. Um, obviously, people break iftar together, so there's been lots of people congregate. So they were just worried about that. But the vaccination has been um, pretty fast. Is it? I, I know of um, you hear stories about teachers and stuff who go over to places like Qatar or um, you know places that are are oil rich, for example, and come back with crazy stories like the price of fuel and no income tax and all that kind of stuff. Are, yeah. are all those things true? Is it, are people over there, you know, teaching, earning screeds of money and bringing it all home? Is that, are those accurate? I mean, I, I can't, I don't know what people get paid. Um, but yeah, the pride, like filling up my, uh, we bought a secondhand Prado, like a 2008 Prado, and I can fill that up. So four wheel drive, I can fill that up for like less than 25 New Zealand dollars. Like it's, it's cheap. Um, fuel is cheap. Food and everything is pretty expensive. Um, like the average meal out would be like, I don't know, 70, 80 New Zealand dollars. You mean for a serving Uh, or for a whole meal? For like, um, okay, let me be actually real about this. If you were to go and have a steak at like a medium restaurant, you might pay 400 reals, which is about $90. Yeah. So that's about what. So that feels like about double. For a decent steak in New Zealand, you might pay 40, 45 bucks. Yeah. It's an expensive place to live. Um, But yeah, there's no, there's no, um, I think it's like you pay 1% tax or something. Wow. And that's just because of the oil? That's just because it's, it's it's so wealthy and the resource around the world? I guess also their whole, their whole, um, the whole population is expats, like 90% of it is expats. And so they want to be a place that um, draws expats and draws innovation and they've just you know they've uh, really looked to diversify away from oil so into the sick uh, like service industry and everything so i guess they want to make it worthwhile for people to to live there um yeah 
people with kids tell me it's a really good place to have kids um and also because like a lot of the companies when they bring you over they'll also like give you accommodation or an accommodation allowance or um yeah like it's there's quite a lot of like public holidays in the year so i think the quality of life is is quite good yeah and as long as you go from kind of building to building and you never step foot outside it's fine yeah, except I have a dog, and so she makes life really hard in Doha because you have to go outside three times a day. Yeah, and very few people, I mean, unless you go and live in a compound, you don't have a backyard or anything like that. So yeah, I often like friends of mine will send videos of themselves at like the beach in Castlecliff, which is near Wangan like in Wanganui, or my friend was sending me a video of his dog running on some empty beach in Dunedin. It was just so beautiful, and I just think <laughs> the dog quality of life i was gonna I, I, this is probably the time I, I do this too much at the moment but this is the time that i bring up the imagery of uh of my dog running on an empty oh, beach in dunedin do you want to say hang on let me find a yeah. the best thing to do is go to go to tiktok oh, yeah. tiktok uh, we've got a border collie puppy oh yeah puppy. a border collie puppy. well uh, uh what's puppy these days um uh, puppy. I think anything under a year. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Here we go. Let me do this. This is my this is my TikTok page that no one ever goes to, but I'll um I'll bring this up so you Give can it a plug. so you can you can have a look. Here we go. If I go two up and then I go computer and then you can see it, and this is this is her in the backyard, not. Oh shit! So oh look at her little head. See, there's no She's stairs adorable. here. You have to go around the. She's back. trying to get up on come. the deck. No, no, come. It's her confused face. What? Come on, let's go. What's her name? Nala. Yeah, Nala. Like the uh, like the Lion King, the female Lion King dong. There you go. Oh, look at her. Yeah, there's something wrong with her. My my 14 year old keeps telling me, Dad, we've got a broken dog. There you go. So yeah, that's my one. She's um often in here with me in the studio, but the kids are home for school holidays at the moment, so she's upstairs playing with them. If you can hear any creaky boards going on. Speaking about being independent, this is my in the basement of my house. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, but yeah, I, I I get it. I mean, that last one that I showed you was at the local dog park, and again, there's an appreciation thing. Well, we have a Dunedin Facebook page at the moment, and there are pe people bitching about the dog parks that they're only rectangles. And there's no there's no water there to feed my dog, and I'm just like, dude. You know how much I would kill for a space to just be able to let my dog run. Yeah. Like she, there's nowhere that we can go that she can be off the leash. There is one dog beach, which is like 45 minutes from where we live, and it's yeah, I mean, it's not always the nicest. Uh, but anyway, it's perspective, isn't it? I'm also part of all these like Golden Retriever um, Facebook, uh, Golden Retrievers in New Zealand Facebook pages. Um, and I spend too much time looking at Golden Retrievers running around in the outdoors in New Zealand. <laughs> now, speaking of New Zealand, you yeah. the reason I connected with you, because I saw a post somewhere um, about you coming to New Zealand and having a bit of a holiday around the place. So you, this is now. You're now you've yeah. now I got confused because that was such a long time ago. I thought maybe you'd come and gone away, <laughs> but but that's just the excitement was has been I guess mounting for months. It's been getting me through. Okay, for great. A long time. So yeah. so at one stage you actually put out there maybe on your Instagram, you know what should you do when you get to New Zealand? I mean, as a Kiwi, are you are you just looking for input from people at that point? Were you just wanted to know what should I show hubby or what's the what's the, what, oh, what what are you looking for? 
whenever we come back, uh, it's basically like got to see everyone in a very small amount of time. So it's like we go to Whanganui, we go to Taupo, where my mum lives, and then that's basically all we have time for. But this time I'm like, he's got a week off work. So that one week I want to be like a tourist um, in my own home, which I just haven't done for so long. And I haven't been in the South Island for like 10 years or something. I don't even remember the last time. So I want to go, well, we are going to go um, down, go see my brother who's at university in Wellington and then go across to Picton and then do a little ticket tour. Nice. So, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Is so it, far, I've only booked the first part. Is there anything you haven't done in New Zealand? Mostly when you talk to reporters, they've done everything because they've gone somewhere for something, for something, for this, for that. Is there anywhere that you haven't been? Yeah. I haven't been to the West Coast uh, of the South Island. Yeah, and I also haven't spent as much time in the far north as I would like to. That's basically it. Well, after you, la- yeah, after, you after you land in Picton, then you just want to take a right, mate. Go out through Nelson and then keep on yeah, going, exactly. keep on going down. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to like a, a nature eco yoga place in um, I think it's called Mairoa or Mo- Moria or something near um, near Nelson. And then yeah, probably go on right to the to the west coast and and check it out. I remember when I worked in I worked at TVNZ in Christchurch, and there were two reporters who were always always going to the west coast, Lisa and um, Joy Reid, and they would always talk about how beautiful it was. And I just ever since then I'm like I have to I have to make time and and, and go at some point. So this is this is the time. Yeah, it's spectacular on another level. But then once you get down through kind of down through the bottom half of the South Island, up through Central. I mean, you obviously will know that area. Most people do. It's that It's that kind of, it's kind of beautiful like Central Otago, but m- m- less developed, obviously, more like a thousand years ago. It, it feels, I don't know, cool. I, I don't want to relate everything to Lord of the Rings. I feel like as a New Zealander, you're supposed to. But it's like, you know, Lord of the Rings that was shot around parts of New Zealand and then they enhanced the images. It's like the West Coast doesn't need the enhancement. It could just be the raw shot, yeah. that sort of thing. It's a, it's yeah. a bit more, it's a bit more rugged, a bit more rural, and um, and and the yeah. cell phone reception is not as good, which is great. Yeah. I'm also like, I guess it's a little bit like checking out new, like the place in New Zealand where I, if I, when we come back, where I would want to live. Like, I don't know if I would want to live in Auckland City again, or in any city. A, I mean, a, I can't afford a house. B, I don't know. If I want that, you know, like at a certain age, you're like, do I, I want to, sp- I want to spend more time with the things that are important, like my family. So what is that going to look like? So it's also a little bit of like checking out different places. Like I'm excited to go to Nelson. Um, I know someone who lives there who loves it. So I want to go and check that out. So yeah, it's also a little like reconnaissance mission, I guess. It is really interesting when you don't have any, any need to be somewhere in other words, mm-hmm. you're not moving to Doha for a job because there's one flight. Yeah. Like, so you've got, you know you want to live somewhere, let's say in a country, yeah. but you don't have any need to be in any one particular place. Yeah. How you then pick, because I've, I've done, I, that's how I ended up in Dunedin. Really? Be- yeah, yeah, yeah. Because didn't, didn't. I think Dunedin house prices have apparently skyrocketed because so many people are moving there. They've skyrocketed comparatively to Dunedin. Right. Um, They've not. I mean, Dunedin house prices comparatively to Dunedin, or do you mean Auckland? No, yeah, comparing to Dunedin, like so, what was compared to Auckland, they've gone up a lot, but compared to say Auckland, Wellington, Queenstown, Christchurch, you know, the big sort of 
four, yeah. You, yeah. you know, you'll still easily get a house here for four, five, six hundred k, and, and a perfectly nice house. Whereas yeah, yeah. in Auckland at the moment, I think the average price is already one point one million, which means to but get. But isn't a, it freezing cold in Dunedin? This, all the time. So this is what I'd say to you, right? And I'm not trying to sell Dunedin to you. Although the thing that's cool about Dunedin <laughs> is we're over-resourced. Because of the university bringing in a billion dollars yeah. a year to the economy, we wow. have the resources for the students that then the locals get the benefits from. Cool. So, you know, there needs to be the nightlife, there needs to be the cafe scene, there needs to be those things that the students want and that the yeah. university enables there to be the businesses for and then the rest yeah. of us get to get the benefits from it so i think this is probably the most over-resourced uh proportionally city in the in the country and i think that works for us on to the cold thing um a friend of mine would say to me i got it a lot when i was leaving auckland about oh yeah it's gonna be cold though and my response was how much are you paying for rent and they went oh 600 bucks a week and i went okay so i'll take your first week's rent for the first week of the year, I'll buy a polyprop and a puffer jacket and then I'll be fine for the rest of the year and you can keep paying your 600 bucks a week. Yeah. And it really and also, is, it really is as simple as that. Nice. Sometimes I like, well, definitely in Doha, I miss the cold, like the feeling of being cold. Um, and sometimes it's nice to like wrap up and, you know, go to outside and see breath. Today is the second fire upstairs of the, of the season. So first fire was yesterday, second fire today. No, there's no question it's cold. If people don't like the cold at all, you know, it's not the best place to live. But actually in saying that, you can live here the reverse to what you live in Doha, but you only would have to do it for three or four months a year. In other words, it's too cold to be outside. So just go house yeah. to house or house to work or car to house or whatever. But for but you the... need to be cozy inside. You don't have to have the air conditioning on constantly. So yeah. it's not like your eyeballs are drying out because you because they're constant air conditioning no and and, also, and the other thing is for the other nine months it's 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 fine you know yeah. and, and and you don't you don't have to worry about that but i always you know when we got down here i, I bought a, a, a better equipped car like an suv four-wheel drive thing i mean i live in a house right now that's got some double glazing some single glazing i've got a plan to get the single glazing replaced with double glazing and that's like the puffer jacket i mean i wrap myself in appropriate clothes to live in this area and in an yeah. ideal world, if one can afford it, not trying to sound like some privileged dick here, but, you know, at some stage I will finish the house off and wrap the whanau in an appropriate space mm. for the, the, the weather as well. And then I actually really like the cold weather. Winter down here is best because I came out of the Waitakere Ranges, lived out by Ahuia, out past Tarangi. I would love to live there. Mm. Oh, my God. In native bush? Yep. Like, wow. Well, that's where we came yeah. from. And the rain in that part of Auckland is 300% more than what it is yeah. in Dunedin for winter. So in winter, you have very cold days, but you have a lot of blue skies and sun. And I love it. That's my favorite weather. So, yep, yes, it's cold. Suck it up. I like it. Um, mm. And, and have, no place is perfect. I have also always had a thing for my hometown of Whanganui. Like, I love it there. I feel like my soul is at rest which is weird because I spent my whole teenage years desperate to get, get out, away, you yeah. know, just like plotting my escape from the time I was like 13. And now I'm like, oh, I wonder how could I create a life where I could live in Whanganui? Like, it's weird, but, you know, it's, cool. it's a great town. So what you do is you build a studio in your house, <laughs> you become independent, and then you monetize. And then you can do whatever you want to do. The monetizing is the only hard bit. 
That's the only bit that's yeah. That's difficult. Yeah. But you you do you do like Al Jazeera South, and you do a show out of your bunker in uh, Wanganui when you get here. Yeah. You could totally do that. Like I mean, that, that's one of the things as well about this whole New Zealand media landscape, not quite picking up on things. In America, if you're a talkback host, for example, you don't go into a radio station. None of them do. They all have studios in their houses, you know, that kind of, and they broadcast out of their houses, and that's what plays around the whole country. Again, because they have an economy that can that can do that. But now because the entry point to get a like studio equipment into your house has dropped so much, anyone can do that. You could totally run a yeah. international in fact I, I i was speaking to a um australian radio station content director just the end of last week about you know doing some stuff with an australian radio station and, and i could do it from here you know because it's easy yeah. to to send a broadcast signal on the way i do also think that now even mainstream networks are starting to invest in regional news because also people are moving away from the cities um I don't know. There's like a, a real, I don't, I don't, I don't know. They, they just seem to be more interested in like of, of, of stories that are coming from the regions. When I was at TVNZ, there was a guy called John Newton who was based in Monganui and who was always like pumping out amazing stories about the things that were happening, like right across the central North Island. So, I mean, yeah, people, people are interested. So well, I, I don't know. Well, I, don't I think, know. I think the way radio survives in New Zealand is to go back to being hyperlocal. So that would make sense what you're saying if it was to flow on into the news a bit more as well. And I've already said that, you know, we're we're a good size for all these things continuing on. But you know, from the '80s onwards, with radio going from local, you know, there used to be one ZB, two ZB, three ZB, four ZB. I remember Star FM and it. Yep, and then getting more and more and more uh, network. I think the way that radio beats off. Spotify, Apple Music, you know, uh, iTunes, podcasting, if they were going to, to go back to hyperlocal. And I think that's mm. that's maybe reflected in what you're saying about uh, local news content as well. Yeah. Because I can, fi- I, I can find out like- I can find out about what's happening in Auckland from an Australian news source if I want to, but yeah. can't find out what's going on in, in Whanganui or Timaru or, you know, wherever else, Roxborough. It also sounds like if the radio industry wants to survive, it needs to like completely do an like clean out all, all its creepy men by yeah. the sounds of it. Like seriously, have you? There's this Instagram um, something about the glass ceiling. Have you been following this? No. Obviously, MediaWorks is doing a um, some sort of internal investigation oh, yep, into yep, yep. sexual assault and harassment um, within its brands, and then this uh, Instagram has started. I think it's under the through the glass ceiling, something like that. And it's uh, people are sharing their stories anonymously of sexual harassment in the radio industry and in the music industry. Got it. Um, beneath no. beneath the glass ceiling? Maybe it's that. Yeah, let me bring it up so other people can see it if they're watching. Here we go. Let me do this. Let me do this. Beneath the glass ceiling. Yeah, Re- real life experiences working beneath the glass ceiling of Aotearoa's music industry. Yeah. And those stories are harrowing. And... It sounds like the music industry, I don't know how far it extends, definitely the, the media industry needs a reckoning with gender equality, with women being able to feel safe in the workplace. Coming back to that thing of like, not feeling lucky to have a job working in the music industry, but being like, no, actually, we're going to make you safe and pay you what you deserve. And, you know, you're going to work for us and give us your best. And we're going to make this a great place for you to work. The end. So anyway, it right. seems like the whole industry needs a little uh clean out i've got some thoughts for you i'd like your take i'd like your take on this 
because you've just sparked something off for me which could turn into another hour conversation which i promise it won't because i'm interested about what you're saying for a couple of reasons i know and obviously i can't mention names but i know that there are some people uh radio announcers through media works let me take a couple of things first of all first of all the duh, what did you think was going to happen award goes to media works because of the misogynistic um on-air content they've been setting up at places like the rock for such a long time is anyone really surprised i mean i'm not saying it's okay obviously but is anyone really surprised that someone from that radio station has come out for being someone who's you know been a complete prick and inappropriate around women that's been what they've been doing on air for 30 fucking years what do they think is happening behind the scenes i don't think it's just that radio station. no 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 i know because i said i know someone else there and I know that he's basically said, and I'm not saying who it is, if he goes down, he's going to take the whole lot down with him. Because, Good, take the whole out. Nobody well, wants you. But this is the third point that I want to make to you, and I really would love your thoughts around this. I remember it happened with Paul Henry, I think, when he was on TVNZ. Who knows? TVNZ, TV3, back to TVNZ, back. who knows? But the management of these places set up these people to mm. be these characters and then when those characters either fall over, go too far, or let's say at the moment what we're going through in a change of society, you know, the whole Me Too movement and that where we're moving, all of a sudden become passe and acceptable yesterday, all of a sudden it's the Paul Henrys of this world or it's the radio host X of this world, and I'm not talking about anyone's broken any laws or anything, but, you know, the the... The character that was set up and encouraged and paid to be that by the management is then thrown out the door. And that's why this one particular person I know about is like, I'm going to take you all down with me because the question of scapegoating comes in there as well. Let me be really clear. I'm not advocating for any of these people who have done it. I've never been involved in it in the radio industry. I've seen it a little bit maybe, but it's not been my bag. But all I'm going is there's this clean out that needs to happen. Agree 100%. But what I hope doesn't happen is those who enabled the characters that are now being cleaned out, paid them to be those characters, and now are going, unacceptable, get to get off scot-free. Yeah. No, I hope it goes all the way to the top as well. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't think it will. I wish it did. Like, if there could be some sort of investigation which didn't just look at the people who were seen but the people who were unseen and as you say the enablers or the bosses or whatever like I, I hope that happens but I also don't think it's a I don't think it's a um I don't think it's a matter of like oh now the me too movement is here and so now these people are put on notice like that society has somehow changed and what was okay is no longer okay I think these things were never okay I think it was just that women were never empowered enough to speak out about what was not okay. It wasn't that it was okay then and now it's not okay. No, it was never okay. It was just that it wasn't safe enough. There was no safe space for people to speak out and say, hey, you know what? I was sexually harassed at work. Hey, you know what? You can't make jokes like that in front of me. Like it's inappropriate. Um, so yeah, I hope that, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what will happen, but I am encouraged at least that there are signs of people speaking out about what is really happening i mean i remember um working with someone once i won't say where or who 
but who would make sexist jokes all the time, like just jokes that would make you feel deeply uncomfortable. And I would always call him out and then I would get called out for calling him out. Like, I'll oh, take a joke or, you know, like, why can't you know, just, just relax or we're just joking around or whatever. And it's like, no, like you can't be like that. And it's only, I guess, as I've gotten older and more like confident in myself and my own role in my workplace, that I'm like, consist i would consistently call that out because it's not okay but if you think about like young women coming into the industry or women who have like um you know bosses who are wielding power and making it very clear that their their roles and their positions depend on them adhering to this like cultural norm then of course it's going to be difficult for them to say anything because your job's at stake you know anyway i'm yeah, interested i'm interested in the idea of it never being okay because, and let me make this very clear to anyone who's listening or watching this, I agree with you, right? Mm -hmm. Some filthy joke about women in front of women or about a woman to that woman never has been or okay. Or to anyone. Or to anyone. To anyone. <laughs> but that's, that's one, of, one of the things I was going to say is it kind of also depends what we're talking about because there has definitely been a shift where things have been deemed acceptable. Let's not talk about the sexist thing. Let's talk about an inappropriate joke or swearing words or something. You know, people that have been called out on things that they did 20 years ago, because in that society, and I'm not saying you would say it's okay or I would say it's okay, but for some reason in that workspace, it's deemed okay, or in society, it's deemed okay. And it just makes me think, and I wrote it down, I wrote, who makes it okay? And if it was never okay, why did it happen? So who or what? is the thing that makes that joke that that comedian told in 1999 okay, who now, and I'm not actually talking about Kevin Hart, but but who now um, gets cancelled from hosting the Oscars because that was never okay. But in the moment it was okay, but it was never okay. And how do we traverse yeah, that story? I see what you're saying. I think, like, I'm sure there must have been, there must be things that I've said or whatever, tweeted or whatever that I, like, inappropriate or whatever but when you know better you do better and you apologize and you say i got it wrong and i'm gonna do better and that's all you can do you can't go back and change the past um but yeah i think the, the comedian issue is a whole separate thing and i was listening to a podcast about um exactly this louis theroux with some british comedian very famous whose name i don't know but anyway, talking about like, is it safe to be a comedian anymore because the things that you say can be construed or, or you know, it, what, what, what was funny is no longer funny. And that's a, that's a whole world I don't even know how to begin to traverse. But, that, but that's a part of this conversation around it was never okay. Because when we're, we've, we've tangented, tangented we've, we've performed a tangent slightly away from, for example, sexual harassment, because yeah. there's another part of society today which says that joke was never okay or that comment was never okay or, you know, that that whatever was never okay. And following the same idea, if it was never okay, why did it happen? And why was it acceptable to a huge portion of society then? And so, so I have this thing where, and it might sound a little bit kind of okay boomer and a bit sort of redneck, but it's like I, I kind of refuse to be judged for societal things I did yesterday based on today's standards mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. I'm not talking about for example if it's a criminal activity or a fireable offense I'm not talking about that but if mm -hmm. I said or did something you know in 1995 and this is never going to affect me because how I, would you feel if you found out that the thing you said or did in 1995 made the people around you 
deeply uncomfortable, but they didn't feel like it was okay to say anything. Does the, that make it okay? Because no, 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 because no. I'm not actually saying it's okay. But what I'm saying is if someone comes out today and says, and it's never going to happen to me because th this is what I do, you know, um, but that says you can't do this today, Pat, because the standards of society, whether they're right or wrong, whether I agree or disagree with them, say that this is unacceptable, right? And you did it 25 years ago, so I'm afraid you're done for today. I, I think that connection is... Un and, and I was talking just the other day to someone about this uh, on, on the podcast, actually, about, you know, there are the comedians, but then there are other comedians who, who haven't been sort of piled on. Now, look, at Eddie Murphy is about to come and do some more stand-up. And if you watch Delirious, one of the greatest ever stand-up routines there has been what he says about the gay community and that, by today's standards, are horrific. Like, they are horrific based on today's standards does that mean that that piece of art is actually a piece of trash and should never be seen again does that mean he should be cancelled today based on the comedy of that era I, I i all i guess i'm saying is i don't think it's as black and white as what a lot of people are portraying let me put it that way that there is more nuance to it and i think what i struggle with is when people make absolute decisions and absolute positions based on an area of life to me that there feels like there's still a little nuance to have around. Yeah. I think it all comes down to when you know better, you do better and that's all you can do. Yeah, that's, that's great. I like that. I also hope that, that I hope that there is a shift in the media industry in this country to not give platforms to people who are their sole reason is to be offensive and their, their sole, you know, that, that their, their message is so full of like hatred and division. We don't need that. We don't need that for ratings. That's not what makes good television or good radio anymore. Not maybe not ever. But I, I just, yeah. I, I, I don't I, know. Was it, was it the Don Brash? Was it Don Brash who was on was on some radio, some talkback radio? I'm, I'm going to, I think I missed this story. But he was filling in for a radio host, and he said some like horrendous. He let some horrendously racist things go to air. Was it him? Oh, uh, uh, no, it wasn't Don Brash. What was the former mayor of of Auckland? Oh, John Banks. Banks, yeah, John Banks. Um, I mean that sort of thing should never have been allowed to. You know, like how, why would you even have someone on air in the first? I, place I agree. That wouldn't that wouldn't call that out. Yeah. You know, like. That is not the country that we live in. I agree. And, and I think we are, in the media, our job is to reflect society, and that is not reflecting society, you know? Um, I, or maybe it is. Maybe it is, and that's a whole other problem in itself. I kind of, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I accept what you're saying. My only my only difficulty with it is I still kind of have this innate belief, and maybe it's my naivete, I'll, I'll accept that, is that the best form, the best thing against bad speech is good speech. Um, and you mentioned Don Brash. I remember when Don Brash came out and said a whole lot of horrifically racial things about, you know, the treaty or whatever. I had him on a podcast not long after that, and I got conversing with him, and I asked him to explain to me what, you know, Kawanatanga and Rangatiratanga was and these things that are within the treaty document, and he couldn't explain them to me. And I mm -hmm. so I said to him, but if you're going to make these stands and, and explain to us what the treaty says, you, you don't even know what these key... <laughs> You, yeah. you, you can't even tell me what these key things are. How yeah. how are we going to take your opinion as anything serious? Yeah. And he cancelled an appearance the next day to talk about the treaty. I always take credit for that. I don't know if it's true or not. But yeah. but, but that to me was an, a, a period where good speech kind yeah. of was it was important. You, uh, we weren't talking about platforming back then. This was either 2008 or 2011. I can't remember which it was. Um, yeah. 
but it, it negates it. And, and you're talking about um, not having those on. I mean, we talked about Paula Penfold earlier today. Her documentary on Billy TK is unbelievable. And he's exactly the kind of guy that you wouldn't quote-unquote platform for his views, but her platforming him, I think, did a huge amount of positive things to uh, shut his argument down. So I hear what you're saying, but I guess, again, to me it feels like I can't, I guess I struggle with the black and white lines, that it depends on the situation and it depends on the approach. If you're doing it just for ratings, I agree with you. If you're doing it because, um, you know, you want some good speech, some light in the darkness, then, you know, maybe there's a reason. I remember when I was uh, doing that um, Facebook live show at MediaWorks and we were doing, I can't remember, it was some issue about like how racist is New Zealand or something. And I wanted to have um, someone from the Māori community on the show to be a voice. And I remember asking somebody um, who was, I won't say who they were, but they said to me like, how dare you ask me to come on your show to be your Māori talking head mm. to give this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, at the time I was shocked. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give a diversity of opinions. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. But do you know what? Now I get it. Like she was saying like, you shouldn't just have to reach out for a Māori voice when you need one. You should, you should be embedded in the community whose story you're trying to tell so that this person doesn't just become the other that you're presenting. It becomes, you, do you know what I mean? Like I, I really felt it quite strongly when I was watching the coverage of the, after the um, mosque attacks. Right. Because it felt like all of a sudden the New Zealand community was pulling these Muslim voices out to put out there when they had never cared about these, this community before. Or like I hadn't seen many stories from the Muslim community and all of a sudden it was like, I don't know. It, it felt very other, and and and. But I am encouraged to see now that the New Zealand media is diversifying in itself. You know, when I was at broadcasting school, there was no one in my class who was Maori. There was no one who was from the Pacific Islands. There was no like, there was no Asian voices. Like it, there was none of it. The, the newsrooms were so white, and now that's changing. Thank God that is changing. But yeah, the moral of the story is like when you know better, do better. Like that girl yep. who told me off, she was right. And I couldn't see it at the time, but I see it now. And so I'm going to try and do better. We should all try and do better, you know? I Again, it's one of these things. I remember uh, when I used to be married, I did marriage counselling, and the counsellors got me really, really... It's not, real casual when it's not, not difficult, but I, I do find it quite difficult. It's part of my personality to, to do the black and white thing because I agree with you in principle about also being embedded in for the stories, but I also know logically and... Um, uh, well, logically, logistically, that we can't be embedded in everybody's stories. So there's always going to be an element that we're not able able to have that group stories because it's impossible to be embedded or have someone embedded in every aspect of life. But the principle of what you're saying, I still agree with. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it's that big of an ask to expect to have... Um, a reporter in New Zealand who is Muslim or a reporter in New Zealand who is um, understands the Indian New Zealand community. I don't I don't think that's that big of a of a task. And I think that is one of the reasons why Al Jazeera does so well in yeah. telling stories nationally is because we have people everywhere. And so when we when we something happens somewhere, you don't just have someone who's like parachuting in, although sometimes that happens, but you have someone who understands that community, and when you can tell a story from that perspective, you give it te you give it texture and you give it depth and depth and you give it context, and it 
yeah, I think it becomes more true. I think sometimes there's a difference between principle and practice. Like I think the principle of what you're saying is absolutely accurate and true and 100% behind it. I think the practice of that is it's always going to fall over somewhere, somehow. I'm not saying that's to be defeatist. But even with but all it, we can do is try and do better. Do that's better. all we should do. Yeah. And you should try and do better every day and then. Hey, listen, we've been talking for about seven years, something like that. But I did <laughs> want to have one other question for you if, if you've still got another two or three minutes. Yeah, yeah, I do. I just, I'm on 10% battery. That's okay, well, let's super quick answer, because I know that you obviously did coverage with the uh, US elections, etc., as the anchor at Al Jazeera. Yeah. Are you allowed to have opinions, and are you allowed to share those sorts of opinions when you're working? Or as the anchor, like I think about Simon Dallow as sort of the, the anchor yardstick in New Zealand, or a Mike McRoberts, or, a, you know, someone like that, or a Samantha Hayes. Um, mm. Because that kind of thing, that kind of election was pretty hard not to have an opinion around. How do you handle it as the anchor? Mm. Um, I've always felt like impartiality is the most important thing. And when you tell a story, you tell all sides of it and you try your best to not, for me anyway, it's different if you're an opinion show host, that's different. You're getting paid to give your opinion. But if you're a news anchor, your job is to tell the facts. Um, And that was uh difficult not difficult for me in that election but i think it was it was so uh american politics in general so polarized um talking to my friend actually today in the u.s who is a republican and uh, she we 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 fight a lot not because i'm a democrat or i align in a certain way but because we're able to have these like nuanced conversations which i really appreciate because i don't live in america um, and she was even saying like for the first time she feels like she's covered the Middle East for a long time and she was like dude for the first time in my life I'm having nightmares about getting shot in the street in my own country and wow. I'm like dude that's like that's so telling about like your psyche living in that country right now anyway I digress um, the American elections it was like obviously full of emotion and division and um, what happened I mean the what happened at um, the capital riots after that were just crazy and it was crazy to watch that happen in america and start to be using words that actually made sense that we would usually be using for countries so vastly different for the u.s talking about like is this a coup is this an insurrection is this you know like we're talking about america whoa what um but yeah no for me it wasn't difficult to approach it with as much impartiality as we can especially as an anchor your job is not to give your opinion your job is to throw to the correspondence to give the facts and to talk about what is happening at the time it's really your job the american thing's been fascinating i went and saw um oh what's it called uh judas and the black messiah a few weeks ago and there was a quote that one of the characters said in a movie theater yeah 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 in a movie theater you went inside a cinema did you have to wear a mask were the people close to you was it weird did anyone cough it was weird it was weird it was the first movie I'd been to since pre-lockdown 12 months ago. But yeah, yeah. Everyone should go to the movies, though. My dad manages the cinema, and it's been a tough time. Anyway, yeah, continue. Um, and I'm just reflecting back on the American thing you said about the words and the person being scared in the street at the moment. Um, mm. I actually can't remember, recall, where the quote came from, but one of the characters in the movie said they were, they were, they, they, they were quoting someone else. Their character was quoting a, another person, and they said... Um, uh, uh, politics is war without bloodshed and war is politics with bloodshed 
And I was sitting in the cinema just thinking, so America's been at war with itself probably its whole life, but certainly since the 1960s. And it's in a particularly vicious part of war right now because there's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of it is surrounding their own politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always um, struggle when I have panel shows with like Republicans and Democrats because even if they want the same thing, their opinion about how to get there is so different. It's like, how do you even begin to find the crossover? Like yeah. we were talking the other day about um, gun control and it's like, okay, we can all agree that, you know, the fact that a black man is 20 times more likely to be killed by a gun than a white man is horrendous. And we can all agree that we want to be safer, that the country needs to be safer. But then the opinion about how to get there, we need more control on guns versus we need less control on guns. It's like, how do you find, how do you begin to find the crossover there? I don't know. Hey Kim, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for um, giving us some time to chat to. All the time in the world. It was really nice to so, talk to you. Of your 336 hours in isolation? Yeah. Maybe. That sounds so bad if you say it like that, 336 hours. I'm pretty, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that's right because I think I've written on a few emails to a few agents saying, oh, why can't we get, they're going to be bored out of their brain. We'll take one of their 336 hours up. <laughs> um, if people want to, like, you're, you're going to be ticky-touring around New Zealand. Are you going to be doing anything publicly? Are you going to be blogging about it? Or are you going to be Instagramming about it? Or if people wanted to kind of see what you're up to, were they, were they able to? I'll be Instagramming about it, for sure, for sure. All around the country, the most beautiful places in New Zealand. And also, any suggestions for the South Island? I'm still, like I said, I've only booked, like, the first two days. So if anyone has any suggestions, I am all there. Well, like I tell people, if you are a fan of Melbourne... It probably means you're a fan of Wellington because Melbourne's Wellington's like a smaller Melbourne. Yeah, I used to live in Wellington. I love Wellington. Which probably means you'd be a fan of Dunedin because Dunedin's like a slightly smaller Wellington. It's got that same oh, kind cool. of that's got that same kind of vibe about it. So come swing through and hit us up, and we'll take it to we'll go to the cafe spots and we'll make sure that nice. you know where to go. And if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, they could also go to kimvanell.com. You've got details and stuff there, uh, and uh, yeah. Just thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a whole lot of fun. And I hope you, we didn't wake your husband up from having his sleep. All right, team. It's just done and dusted with Kim Vanell. Uh, thanks to Behemoth Brewing, who are the major sponsor of the show. And also Chulies.co.nz is Chulies Brew Pub. It's the home of Behemoth Brewing. And if you are based in Auckland and you'd like to check out the home of Behemoth Brewing, they are located at 1A Charles Street, Mount Eden, behind Target Furniture on Dominion Road. That's the city end of Dominion Road. You can go check it out. Go have a meal. Tell them Pat sent you to Chulies Brew Pub. Uh, also, this episode was brought to you in part by Betty's Boy, Betty Boy's Coffee. Uh, Betty Boy Coffee is a new way for you to support podcasters. Basically, you buy the coffee, you enjoy the coffee, you support the podcast. Pretty simple concept there. Head to bettyboy.nz slash doc to make your shirt purchase. Uh, every single bag you purchase does literally put dollars into our bank account and helps us to continue making this podcast. Hey, we've got a lot of interesting podcasts coming up here over the next wee while. Easiest way to keep a track of who's coming up when is to visit us on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DOCNZ. If you like that page, it's a good way to communicate with us as well. If you'd ever like to know anything, 
or you'd like to have a, a chat or a suggestion for a guest or a question that you need answered, then the Facebook page is a really interesting and easy way to do it. You can, of course, come to us via our website as well, www.thedoc.nz. There is a contact form on there as well for any reason. You do need to contact us. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate you being with us again today. Hope you enjoyed the podcast with Kim. I certainly know I did. It was a great time. Hopefully... We'll catch up with Kim when she's in Dunedin on her tiki tour around New Zealand. All right, team, all the best. Stay safe out there. Hooroo.